All right, everyone. I'm really excited to be with you today. This is the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James. I'm your host. And today we're going to talk about candy. So I'm recording this episode a few days after Easter. If you didn't get enough sweets and chocolate and candy, you're going to get more today. Today I'm going to interview Warren and Jill Schimpf. They are the owners of Schimpf's Confectionery in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And that's just a stone's throw outside of Louisville. And they have been in business since 1891. So anytime you've been in business that long, you must be doing something right. And I'm really excited to listen to Warren and Jill talk about some of those things that they've done over the years to make the business their own and continue to make great candy and chocolates for their customers. Now here's the interview. Well, great. Well, I'm excited to have you both on the uh, on the show with me this evening. And I want to start just by talking a little bit about the history of your of your candy shop. Anyway, the family came from Germany originally. They came over in the 1850s. Uh, several of the great, for the first generation were candy makers in Louisville. One of them came over here to Jeffersonville and made candy in about 1870s, but he gave that up in the mid-1880s and took over his father-in-law's business. And then he convinced his brother to come over that there was a vac I guess more or less a vacancy in the candy businesses in Jeffersonville and so his brother, which was my great grandfather, came over with his son and in eighteen ninety one opened the business here at three four seven Spring Street. Of course it wasn't that address in those days, but it was the building is the uh, same one we're in today, so the business has been in the same building at this location since 1891, and that's when we date our business here, and the family owned here, but the family did make candy somewhat before that, but we kind of like to keep it here at the same location, and that's what we say where the business started. Kind of an interesting very beginning. It was a Magdalene Schimpf in the 1850s in Germany who was pregnant with number eight uh, when her husband died, and plucky little lady that she was, she decided to leave Germany. So she sent her oldest son, who was 12 years old, with his uncle to try and find a city in the United States in which they could settle. And they obviously chose the Louisville area because it was such a large German-speaking area. Turn of the century, 1900, Louisville's largest newspaper was still publishing part of the news in German. So over she came with the other seven kids, and they lived on Preston Street in Louisville. Well, that's great. That's something that I didn't know about Louisville, that uh, that it has a, had a large or probably still has a large German population. Well, there is, there is a large German, you know, most of the River City, Cincinnati, Louisville, uh, you know, it was, Ohio River was the... I say it was the first super highway of the country, and people had to travel by boat, and that's how traversed the country and the cities developed along the rivers. And the German immigrants came in the, you know, started in mid 18, early 1800s, and continued on. And Cincinnati and Louisville both had huge German populations, and and a lot of them went into the candy making business. Uh... Greeks, Italians, and Germans primarily went into candy business. 
into the candy business uh, as immigrants. Now, why was that? Well, it was uh, a fairly cheap way of getting into business because you didn't need much. You needed a kettle, ingredients, something to stir with, and a stove, and a table, and you didn't even need a, a roof over your head because a lot of immigrant families had portable marble tables, and they'd take them out on the street corners and sell something simple like fudge and peanut brittle and so forth and sell directly to the customers. I don't think the Shimps ever did that in Louisville, but mm-hmm. a lot of immigrant families did. And of course, uh, when the immigrants came, they needed something to do. They needed a source of income, and a lot of people just decided to go to the grocery store, buy some sugar, and do some hocus-pocus on it and sell it to somebody else and, you know, add value to ingredients you could buy. And so that became the way the Greeks went into restaurants and candy. But, you know, you could buy something and turn it into a profit. And it was a product that most people love. Yeah. No, I definitely enjoy candy every now and then. I think most people do. (laughs) So some things never change, right? Absolutely. Now, just so I can get my geography straight, you're located in Jeffersonville? Jeffersonville, Indiana. Indiana. And that's across right the river across from Louisville? The river from Louisville, Kentucky. So we're uh, we're just a little mi- about a mile and a half as the crow flies from the state of Kentucky where we are located in downtown Jeffersonville. Okay. We walked to dinner in, in Louisville. Okay. So that's, yeah, really close then. When it comes to... When it comes to Schimpf's and the candy-making business, obviously you have a long history with it. What has changed over time? What did they start with as far as you know, different treats and candies they're making? And is that what you're still doing well, today? Some of, some of them, yes, and some of them, no. Uh, one of the earliest things, we have our day book that the family kept uh, in 1891, which listed the things they had to deliver so we get an idea of some of the types of products that they sold. Not all of them they made, but uh, anyway, a lot of the items were popcorn, popcorn balls, and different popcorn specialties. So, and of course, popcorn is still a big part of caramel corn and stuff is something we make today. So that's a Popcorn items is something uh, made early and something we continue with. They also listed hard candy that they made, whorehound drops, peppermint drops, uh, cinnamon, and, of course, make all of that. The early flavors were the, the spice flavors, cinnamon, clove, whorehound, anise. Those are still some of the popular, uh, although cinnamon bean are most popular. We're so, rather well known for hard candy, we make beautiful ribbon candy and candy canes, and we make and have up on the wall a, a candy cane that's uh, what I call life-sized, which would be the same size as a cane a person would use. So people know us for our hard candy. So and you know, so the point is that they made some things. Also, they sold stuff that they resold things. And a little interesting story is listed in. That day book was something that they sold boxes of McGinty's, and we didn't know what a McGinty was, and we, you know, it was an early candy, and one day we happened to be watching the life story of Milton Hershey on the History Channel, 
and uh, it uh, listed things what Mr. Hershey made after he got into the caramel business. And one of the items listed was a McGinty, and it turns out we've done a little research on that. And a McGinty was a grade of caramel. It was a type of caramel. What it was, we're not sure, but it was a type of caramel, a caramel product. So here in 1891, our candy store seems to be seems to have sold something that came from Mr. Hershey's American Caramel Company. So that was that in, was in Lancaster, wasn't it? Yeah, Pennsylvania. So it came down river and looks like we sold. We're purveyors of uh, early Hershey's uh, candy. And of course, that was something he, Mr. Hershey, made before he got into the chocolate business, because uh, that was a little bit later. So we were dealing. Anyway, that was just an interesting little sidelight, a piece of history we found from our day book, and from researching candy history in general. No, I'm a big uh, I'm a big journal keeper and I'd imagine that a day book something like that that stretches that far back would be quite interesting to go through and get a snapshot on daily life on mm-hmm. you know products sold and how much and yes and the candy hard candy was sold uh, six and a half cents a pound. Uh, that was Whorehound Drops. We have a listing for that. They also sold ice cream. Uh, they delivered ice cream in the early days. Uh, I don't think they did in 1891. I'm sorry about that. But they delivered lemons. They delivered, they sold all kinds of sundry products. Uh, but uh, and we, some things we know about and some things, again, like the McGinty. There was another item called Lady Fancy. I have no idea what that was, and we haven't been able to research that, but there's only so much you can do. And we use the word confectionery for our candy store. It's always been called Shrimp's Confectionery. And a confectionery was a place that sold luxury items, you might say, or uh, things like for parties, uh, oysters and... uh, cigars, things like that, that you wouldn't normally think of as a candy store selling. Mm -hmm. But of course, candy stores couldn't exist throughout the whole year as selling candy. You couldn't make candy in the summertime with humidity. Uh, The evolution of the candy store to being making candy uh, 24-7, so to speak, Uh, not not 24-7, 365 days all year long, just didn't exist back in the early part of the L. So in other words, you couldn't make candy in the summertime. Uh, might sell candy. You couldn't sell chocolate in the summertime mm-hmm. uh, due to the you can sell air conditioning. So a lot of candy stores uh, evolved into candy and ice cream. Candy was the wintertime business, ice cream being the summertime business. And the Shims developed quite a following for their ice cream and the 20s and 30s and 40s we were known as one of the places to hang out during those days for the soda fountain that we have and of course we still have a soda fountain today and uh, the back part of the soda fountain is the one that we think was the original to the business and the one soda fountain where you sit at and can get a coke or ice cream float or a chocolate malt or a chocolate shake is uh the soda fountain we have there, the basis of it uh, is from 1941. But we know we've had a soda fountain here since 1921. Uh, we have the telegram that announced the shipping 
of our soda fountain in 1921, and we have the uh, telegram featured in the museum that we've developed. Well, that's fascinating. I did an episode on Dr. Pepper, and Dr. Pepper kind of came out of one of those small soda fountain type settings. And yeah. did did shimps have any proprietary mixtures that they would do from time to time for people? Not that I'm aware of. We, you know, people did come in for you know specialties, but I don't think we had anything that was a name specialty. Everybody had things like cherry cokes and chocolate cokes, that kind of thing, flavored cokes that you'd use your fountain syrups with. Mm-hmm. Now, that's still very popular you, today. You did mention Dr. Pepper, and a picture we have from the 30s uh, inside the shop shows a stand, a big floor stand-up sign that said Dr. Pepper on it. Now, when I was a kid coming here, I don't ever remember Dr. Pepper being sold here or having it here, but as evidence from a photo a photo we have we know that Dr. Pepper was here, but of course, we like coca cola and Coke products and Coke memories, so we have a lot of Coke stuff around. We think yeah. we're the oldest purveyor of coca cola in the Kentuckyana area that's definitely something something unique and on the soda fountain we have still serve Coke out of two antique Coke dispensers, uh, one from the 40s, the one that they classically call the outboard motor. Anyway, it looked like an outboard motor. Uh, And then we have uh, one from uh, about 1960. So both of those are sitting, one serves Coke, the other diet Coke. With the the ice cream, is that something you all still do or... We we do I we still do ice cream but we don't make it. Okay. They stopped making ice cream in the in the sixties when the, we just couldn't get a decent mix. We had a for many, many years we had a dairy that had a process a dairy plant that right behind our business and the family would get the ice cream mix from them with the high butterfat Jersey Guernsey cream. But uh when that stopped uh, the family just Gave up making ice cream, so and we do serve ice cream, but it's uh, it's a good grade of ice cream, but it's Not nothing ice. nothing that we make. Okay, well, a good a good ice cream story. Uh, we had a woman here quite a few years ago who was about a hundred years old and had lived in Jeffersonville all her life, and she said she remembered uh, on the Fourth of July sitting on her front porch waiting for the clip-clop of Schimpf's horse and wagon delivering their ice cream for the marble cake that her mother made for the 4th of July. And uh, we remember the being told by the relatives that the horse's name was Dolly, and she was dearly loved and was stabled at a place that was just kitty-cornered to the store. <laughs> this is making me hungry. I haven't had dinner yet. <laughs> But, you know, we feel bad we can't make ice cream, but you can't do everything. And each generation has evolved. Somebody, my uncle was an ice cream maker, and he liked ice cream, and he was really good at it, and his son was pretty good at it. But third generation, Wig was his name. He was he liked to make ice cream, and they they made a lot of ice cream in the 30s and 40s. But it's not something we can carry through today. Sure. And his son then opened a hobby shop here that was very well known throughout Indiana. Uh, he had a a club, a 
control, what do they call that one? Remote control. Remote control club that he sent, tele, uh, what he called a, a, a telegram, a little uh, news sheet about the model airplanes and trains and so forth. But that business, uh, which was very successful, died when the big boxes came in, the Kmarts. Mm-hmm. They, uh, they could buy their product for less than we could sell it for, so it wasn't financially viable. <laughs> so basically one of the things that uh, Shimps has evolved through the years is more another family member came in, they had to... They, might have changed the business, and when the fourth generation, my cousin the Sonny, uh, entered the business with a family, he, they had to think of how to make a little more money, so he then added the hobby business, which was, I might say, a hobby of his was models, and, and he was very good at it, and he had quite a huge business, and today we still get uh, people coming in, a lot of the older gentlemen of the community will re, you know, say, well, I used to come in here and buy models and remember describe the setup of the store where the models were and what they were and we had a gentleman come in last week who related how he stood in line out we had a theater, we have a had a theater a couple doors down from us and the kids on Saturday would line up for the to get into the theater and look at the windows at Shemps and he remembered a Chris Craft motorboat sitting in the window and just died for it and lo and behold it ended up under the christmas tree <laughs> he was relating what a joy it was to have it and he was relating that he still had it and uh, you know it's amazing the memories that you can build and the memories people have and that's one of the fun things about our business here is building memories you know we have people older generation that'll tell us they came in as a kid you know in the 40s or 50s and what memories they had and of course they're bringing their kids and grandkids in today and of course there are a lot of new families bringing in kids and and we're trying to you know rebuild memories for the people that have memories when they that came in in the early days or just whenever it was and then we're trying to build memories with the new generations that come in and give them a, an experience here that you can't get any other place and it's not too rare for uh, four generations to be in the store at the same time. It's, I'll bet. Uh, just great, to, you know, when school break comes around and the grandparents have to take care of the grandkids and they ask the grandkid, where do you want to go today? What do you want to do? And the kid will say, I want to go over to ships. And so the grandparent says, this is his favorite place. And so it, it just gives us the greatest joy to have kids come in and say, you know, I guess they one of the really interesting things is, is to see that the joy on kids' faces, when they look around and they see what we have here, they realize it's an experience they can't get someplace else. You know, yeah. there are glitzy things, and I have no objection to, you know, the glitzy stuff at the malls and whatever, but a piece of reality that we have here, uh, real life that's been real life for four generations, 128 years, that you can experience here is just something that uh, you can't explain, but it's... Like I say, the kids realize it's uh, something different, and they come in for the joy of the smiles that we put on their faces. 
Yeah, and that's so rare in today's world. Anytime a business opens, it almost has a, a clock ticking down and, until it closes. You know, people will sell, they'll move on. So to have something that is has remained open for four generations is quite an accomplishment. And I might add something here too. You know, we mentioned my cousin bringing in the hobby business. Jill and I, <clears throat> way before we even thought of owning the business, and I might point digress here a little bit, we bought the business in 1990 when my aunt and cousin passed on a year apart in 1988 and 89, the business had to be sold. And we were living in California, and so we bought the business and for 10 years operated it remotely from California coming here. 12 to 15 times a year to oversee things and for 10 years we uh so to speak uh, commuted long distance to keep the business going mm -hmm. but before that jill and i had wanted to collect candy things and we started a collection which came evolved from us helping the family and the when we were Early young marriage, we'd come down from the University of Michigan where we were going to school to help the family. We wanted to know how the stripes got in candy canes and uh, stick candy and how, how to make peanut brittle. So we'd come down uh, college breaks or when we had a chance and help the family. And we got interested in the his historic candies, a few pieces of historic equipment that the family still used, drop roll machine to make hard candy, and got interested in the history of the candy machines, and we started collecting candy machines and anything related to the production of candy. So at one point, we we saw a big container that held candy, and that was what candy was sold in by a big company that uh, produced candy for wholesale so then we said, well, that might be a nice thing to have along with all the machinery we had. So that started the evolution of our candy museum. And so we have one thing led to another and now have what we think is the largest collection of antique candy machines and uh, memorabilia. memorabilia on display in the United States. Uh, we have thousands, uh, over 4,000 pieces in our museum of candy memorabilia, tins and tubs and crates and barrels and vending machines and advertising signs and just everything you can think of, anything that has a name from a candy business in the United States, we have tried to collect it if we could afford it. So what I'm saying is here we've added another aspect of the candy business, and that's the candy museum. To go along with that, we've as a demonstration area where people see us using the equipment that the family has used since the very beginning to make hard candy drops. And so we have a demonstration area where you can see us use that uh, equipment to make our famous Red Hots. Red Hots were something that the family had made through the years and is now our signature piece, which is a Cinnamon hard candy, it's, uh, we say, nicely spicy. It's a lump, a uh, four-sided pyramid, so to speak, and uh, about the size of your thumb. So it's not the little cinnamon imperials that you put on cupcakes that people call 
referred to as Red Hot. This is a candy square, hard candy piece, and that's something we make. And a piece of information about that, last year we made 20,000 pounds of those. We make uh, hard candy on turn-of-the-century equipment, and they can watch us make on turn-of-the-century equipment. And then we are sure to add that uh, I hope you understand it's not the last turn. It's the turn before that. So Turn of the 1900s. Yeah. So through four generations, you know, from what I'm, what I'm gathering from talking with you both, each generation has had their stamp. Some did ice cream, some did, you know, you, you talked about your cousin that had done a hobby shop and now you've added a museum. Would you say the museum is your stamp to, you know, your mark on the business or? Definite, definitely. And it's something that I get great pleasure out of finding things and making associations of, you know, where something came from. Uh, a little story here. We bought a piece of advertising from Switzer Licorice in St. Louis. Showed pictures of various products that they had. And down on the bottom was something that looks like a piece of licorice twist today. However, it had a little thin piece of licorice that like came out of the end of it. And it was called a whip. And this was a licorice whip, which obviously was a buggy whip. And, of course, if you ask a lot of people today, people that call, there might, I think there are many people that call licorice twist that you see today a licorice whip because that's what it's been called for many years. But it today no longer has the string at the end that made it a whip. It just was a flexible piece of uh, the licorice twist, but uh, here's a term that people will use, licorice whip, and I don't think anybody will realize that, you know, that evolved, that name came from an actual licorice buggy whip. Uh, I don't know where that'll get you anything, but anyway, a piece of information, and I just love the history, finding things out like that, stories that you can tell from collecting things and making associations. We consider the museum and the demonstration area to be our stamp, as you called it. The demonstration area was something the family had always dreamed about, to, to be able to show people how candy is made, but they never had the space to do it. And at this point, we have three storefronts and have put a wing on each side of the original, the vintage store. So we do have enough space to demonstrate candy. So that was a dream that was come true because of us, but the the museum was something that, that they never thought about and I'm sure would think kind of strange because they lived through it, but the demonstration area and museum are certainly something that we added. We added what Jill said, wings. We actually bought buildings on either side of us. Mm-hmm. We first bought the building to the north, and that became the museum and the demonstration area. And that sufficed. We opened that in the year 2001, and then about four years ago now, we decided we needed more space, and the building to the south of us uh, hadn't been used for much, and we talked the owner into selling it to us. And so we've added, restored that building as it turns out, it had belonged to my great-uncle, the building, in 1891, 
or 1890s was occupied by my great uncle, who was actually the guy that had the first candy business in Jeffersonville, the first shimp. But uh, he gave that up, as I said, and went into selling other things. And one of his big things was wallpaper and paper goods and stationery and music and, anyway, all kinds of things. So he occupied that building up until the his descendant sold it in the late 50s, uh, and then it became a number of other things through the years, and then we slowly just didn't have anybody in there other than tenants on the second floor, and then we bought it and have restored it into more retail space, more seating for our soda fountain and lunchroom customers. And more demonstration, too. And more demonstration, too. So we say that building has come back to the Schimpfold. Mentioning one thing here, which I don't think we've mentioned, we do serve soup and sandwich lunches, and that was an evolution from uh, needing to get more income. In the Depression days, the family started uh, serving plate lunches and hot food, uh, and that brought it had two things. It had another type of income, but it also brought in lunch customers that would walk by the candy cases and buy candy and in the summertime they sold fireworks they sold all kinds of different things that you know something you could mark up i can't say it was like a dime store but there was always something new and different that they sold there so it was my aunt that became famous in the 50s for her pies and goodies at the plate lunches and hot lunches we still make some pies but we don't make what near what she used to do but that was her stamp uh and her nephew was my cousin and his stamp was the hobby shop so yeah the hobby shop and the lunches and the soda fountain what kept the business going through the 50s 60s up until we bought it in the 1990 you may have touched on this a little bit but um what has been your favorite, and I'll ask this to each of you, what has been your favorite thing about working and, and owning a candy shop? One of the greatest things is to work in the demonstration, for me anyway, is to work in the demonstration area. And, and in general, you know, take some sugar and do some hocus pocus on it, make something that you can almost immediately hand to somebody when we do a demonstration, we do, but hand it to somebody and the feedback coming from what the, you know, I say the customer says, damn, that's good. And, (laughs) you know, that kind of feedback, that's what I enjoy the most is making candy, making something in the immediate gratification from feedback uh, is the wonderful thing for me. Uh, It's also, you know, bringing sweetness to people's lives and the feedback you get from that. And I guess I would say the interaction we have with with children, and maybe you're not old enough to remember the Art Linkletter uh, program, Kids Say the Darndest Things, about kids and what they say. We had two little girls sitting at the soda fountain, and I overheard one of them say, "I I never get anything here. And I heard the other little girl say, why not? And she said, they serve sewer water. (laughs) And I thought, what in the world is she thinking about? And then it dawned on me. And I said, come here, honey, this is soda water. (laughs) And I pumped the the handle up and down, and I said, that's how we make 
carbonated drinks. And we had a, a, a grandmother and a little boy come in, and the little boy got a piece of candy. We try and give everybody a sample of candy when they come in, and I gave the boy a little piece of candy, and grandmother said, but all grandmothers say, what do you say, honey? And the kid looked up at me with this angelic face and said, more. <laughs> he he knows what's up. <laughs> he knows what's up. So you get this wonderful interaction with kids and kids being happy to be in a place and dragging their their grandparents when the grandparents are ter- caretakers during spring break or whatever it is. There are other caretakers, which would be a babysitter or whatever. The kid keeps talking about this. We had to come. When I was in about fourth grade, we went on a field trip to a candy shop. You know, to, to sit there and watch them make candy, there there is something magical about that process. You know, like you said, to take some sugar, do some hocus pocus, and you have something very tangible that that everyone loves. Yes. It's nice to be a a maker of something that everybody loves. Yeah, except maybe dentists. Well, I guess even dentists love it because, you know. Well, we always bring a a bit of candy to our dentist when we go, and they never refuse. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is, for again, a question for both of you, what is your personal favorite treat that you, that you make there in the shop? Well, I like. The thing I like the most that I really enjoyed is what I buy at every candy shop, just the quality of that shop, but it's English toffee, which some places call almond roca, some places call an almond crunch, butter crunch, but anyway, it's sugar, butter, almond, toasted almonds, and then coated in, we coated in uh, dark chocolate with uh, ground almonds on the outside. So English toffee, that's my favorite candy to eat. Uh, that I think one of the nicest things we make. And we have our English toffee, I think, is some of the best you can buy any place. And I guess I'd say I have three things, perhaps. Uh, I love the chocolate malt. Uh, I love the bourbon balls. And, well, I'm trying to think of just... <laughs> One more, but... Uh, cream-filled peanut clusters. Yes, cream-filled peanut, dark chocolate peanut clusters are good. They're just, I like it all. People say, don't you get sick of chocolate? And I say, I'm waiting. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they sound delicious. All of that sounds delicious. One last question I have would be, you know, for any business to be around as long as Shemp's, it's really quite an accomplishment. And what would you say has been your key to success, your key to longevity and continuing to be around today? Well, I think I can answer this first. It's It's been, uh, I think, enjoying the job for all the individual people in the Shim family that have kept the place going. They've always enjoyed making candy and interacting with people. So if you enjoy what you're doing, it's bound to show through. And, you know, it's it's hard to say what, you know, it's just stupid persistence. Uh, when we did some of the expansion work, uh, you know, we were convinced if you build it, they will come, and it proved to be a truism. Uh, we went into a lot of this with blind faith that we just knew we wanted to do this, and we hoped it would work, and it it did. 
Uh, and you, you might talk about our longevity. One of the obvious questions should be, or have, you might have in mind, is what's the future hold for us? We don't have children, unfortunately, but uh, we do have my cousin's son, which my cousin, of course, was a fourth generation, and her one of her kids' son, Steve Shepard, uh, who grew up in Indianapolis, uh, and his family are looking at being the next successors. So, so, pretender to the throne, throne as I say. <laughs> or the, anyway. You can't guarantee the future, but we are, we're working on it. And they yeah. do have five kids that we hope somehow will take up the torch and carry on the family tradition. Steve's uh, wife is our manager, and we're working on it. Well, this seems like a good spot to wrap it up. I did have one question that popped into mind just now. You know, it just occurred to me that I don't I don't often talk with people that own candy shops, right? And um, I would imagine that getting in there making candy every single day, do you ever experiment trying to develop new creations to sell? Or do you just stick with the same old tried and true what's been working for you? Something we worked at uh, a couple of years ago that turned out very successfully. Uh, We're famous for our Red Hots, and we thought, you know, our Red Hots need a softer cousin. So we developed a cinnamon Red Hot cream, and that's been very popular. And so we've tried to, you know, build on some of the traditional flavors. Uh, We haven't gotten into, uh, which is very popular out there, uh, some of the newer being the bar places, and I have no objection to them, and there are lots and lots of flavors that you can put with chocolate, and, you know, that's popular around. We've kind of shied away from that and stuck with some of the tried and true, but yes, as Jill said, we come out with a cinnamon cream that's been very successful, and uh, we I remember something my cousin made, which was a candy bar, uh, which wasn't just something you could get here, but it was caramel and uh, peanut butter fudge, a layer of caramel, layer of peanut butter fudge dipped in chocolate. And we've reintroduced that, and I call it the Sunny Bar in deference to... His name. His name, the guy that came up with it. Can't say it's been super successful but it's something we have and uh, it's nice to have something that i can put a name on with where i got the idea so we do try things i'm not the greatest experimenter so we do pretty much stay with some of the tried and true and we're known for tradition you know the song tradition (laughs) we, we kind of feel we owe it to people to keep tradition one of the things we can say with with this too is people like the sea salt caramels and that's something that came out about 10 years ago whatever and became extremely popular and it's something i personally didn't enjoy the salt taste with the caramel and chocolate but it'd be we for a long time resisted doing it here and finally we did make it and it's become a very popular item we do a lot of caramel products and uh, where our caramel recipe is another came from is another story but uh for another day, but uh, we do sell a lot of caramel products and uh, very good caramel. And we sold a lot of cut caramels dipped in chocolate, milk, and dark. And so we have 
deference to the new taste out there with the sea salt caramel, so we do make that. So we are experimenting, trying to keep up with some of the popular trends. So we're sprinkling sea salt on the top of our chocolate caramels, even though we don't particularly like it. (laughs) (laughs) I guess whatever it takes to to stay relevant today, right? right. (laughs) We try to do the the best we can. Keep the customer happy. Right. Well, Warren and Jill, this has been absolutely delightful. I've really enjoyed the conversation with you today. Well, I hope that uh, now that you haven't eaten dinner, you'll go out and uh, buy a chocolate bar. Yeah, (laughs) that might end up being dinner. (laughs) Uh, That's all I have on my mind right now. I don't know why. It's like I've been talking about candy for the past, you know, little bit or something. We didn't mention it, but we do, you know, have a website, obviously, and we do have a, you can order our candy online, some of our items. All right, so now I want to talk a little bit about what I have been up to in the kitchen. I have been on a dessert kick lately and I've ended up making raspberry mousse, chocolate mousse, and a peach trifle. These recipes are all on toastykettle.com. Now with the mousse, I was using the Dainty Desserts for Dainty People cookbook from the Knox Gelatin Company. And this cookbook has several gelatin recipes that are just fascinating to me. But the ones that really stood out to me were the mousse recipes. And there are a lot of ways that you can make mousse, and some are going to be more complicated and more difficult to get right. With the methods and techniques that I found in this cookbook, it's really as simple as whipping up some cream, dissolving the gelatin, and adding your flavoring. It it really is not anything more complicated than that. And the end result is a really light and airy mousse that is just packed with flavor. The uh, the raspberry mousse that I did had the nice sweet and tart flavor coming through from the raspberries, and it had that delightful light and airy texture that came along with it. The chocolate mousse was that rich and decadent dessert, and I made it for a family dinner, and the kids kept going back for more and more and more. We had to cut them off. But anytime you can come up with a dessert or desserts that everyone likes and loves, you know you have a hit on your hands. With the peach trifle, that one was very interesting. I'm just so ready for summer to be here after the long winter that we've had and the very wet spring that we've had. And Peaches, that's one of those summer fruits that just is very nostalgic for me. I have so many memories eating peaches and enjoying the sweet and the sticky juice that runs all over from a really good peach. So obviously there aren't any really good fresh peaches in the store right now. So I use canned peaches. Um, Say what you will about that. I was in the mood for this dessert, and, uh, and, and that's what we ended up with. But this recipe was from 1887, 
the moose recipes were from 1915. So from 1887, the peach trifle recipe consisted of whipped cream, fresh peaches that had been sugared, and then a cake of your choosing. And I think just a solid white cake recipe would would suffice. So again, with this recipe, you can make it as complicated or as simple as you want. For the recipe that I did, um, I followed their guidelines on how to assemble it, you know, cream, peaches, cake, but I used canned peaches and I used a cake mix. Obviously, that's not going to be as good as making my own cake from scratch, finding that tree ripe peach, pulling it off the tree, slicing it right there on the spot, and uh, and then blending it in with some whipped cream that I just got from the cow that morning. But in a pinch, on a rainy day, when it's ugly and cold outside and you want something sweet, it's not a bad option, and there's a decent chance you have the ingredients on hand. So that's it for the recipe portion of my show. Again, you can find these recipes at toastykettle.com, and you can click on the vintage recipe tab, and that's going to pull up all of these old recipes, uh, the ones that I mentioned, and then many others that I've I've done over the past several weeks. And as always, I'm, I'm always looking for family recipes. If you'd like to share a family recipe and have it featured on my website, just go to toastykettle.com and there will be a very prominent tab right on the main page on how to share a family recipe. Click on that and submit the recipe. Now I have just a couple thoughts that I wanted to share from um, my reflections on talking with Warren and Jill today. They were great to talk with. They had a lot of personality, and you could tell they just had tremendous passion for what they were doing. And they're fourth generation. So this this has been a business that's been in the Schimpf family for uh, four generations, which is incredible. But one thing that really stood out to me was how each generation that was tasked with running the business, they tended to put their own stamp on on the on the business. So he talked about his cousin who added a hobby shop to the to the business that was actually quite successful. So this cousin had a lot of passion for hobbies for model boats and planes and things like that. And added that knowledge and expertise to the the candy legacy that they had been building. And then Warren and Jill, they have this passion for uh, candy history and candy memorabilia from the area through throughout time. And they've been able to add that element into the business today. And that's kind of their stamp on the legacy that they're leaving. So it, it's just been fascinating to see that. I, my, my big takeaway would be that in anything that you're doing, you can bring your own stamp to the process. We all have something that makes us unique, and we all have something that we can contribute to our jobs, our families, to society, whatever it might be. 
make sure you let those unique parts of yourself out from time to time and, and make sure you express that to the people around you. Well, that's all I have for today. If you want to check out the Schimpf Confectionery, I do have links for it in the description. Make sure you go check them out. They have a lot of really good-looking candy on that website. They don't ship all of it. They, do, they don't ship everything that they sell in the store, but they do have quite a nice selection of some of the classics that you you would expect to find from a candy shop that's been open since 1891. If you like what you heard, make sure you leave a five-star review and tell your friends. It really does help other people find the podcast and helps us to grow and reach more people. Until next week.